Well, let's open our Bibles. If you've brought yours, uh, or if you need one, there's one in the back, uh, to the New Testament, to the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 8. It's a nice long chapter, but we will reach the end of it today, Lord willing. Starting in verse 40, we're going to hear the tale of two daughters. And they're not two daughters of the same father and mother, but they're two spiritual daughters by faith in God. As you're turning to Luke chapter 8, let me welcome those who might be watching online, those who are home ill or otherwise hindered, or perhaps someone who's inquiring about the church or longing to hear something from God's word. We welcome you and trust that God will bless you and hopefully bring you to join our fellowship here in person. Let me read God's word to it. We're going to read uh, verses 40 all the way to verse 56, and you'll hear the two stories interwoven. And you'll see the two daughters very quickly. This is God's word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, And she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless all who hear it, believe it, and obey it. Amen. 
We have two stories here with so many things in common. It seems unmistakable that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has, has just told them as they happened, intertwined as they are, using some similarities to make the same point from both stories. What do the two stories have in common? Desperation. We can see that. A child's dying. A woman has lost all hope. But there's also the status of daughter. The the synagogue ruler is referring to his daughter as his only daughter. And it's Jesus who calls the older woman a daughter. Interesting. And one other common feature between the two stories that are intertwined on this particular day is 12 years. The little girl was 12 years old. And the woman had been suffering and bleeding for 12 years. Something had happened 12 years ago in the lives of these two families in the providence of God that would be resolved on this day by Jesus, the Son of God. And yes, it's a great display of the power of Jesus. But oh, the lesson here is even more important than grasping power. The message here is to teach us about a Savior we can trust. To teach us something about faith. The two stories tell one message. Have faith in Jesus. Even when times are desperate and you've run out of all other resources, Jesus can make all the difference in the world. That's good news. And that's what these will tell us about faith. You hear the Bible and you hear preachers talking about have faith, have faith. Here it is displayed. We'll see first the touch of faith in this woman. But then we'll see a testing, a trial of faith for the synagogue ruler. And thirdly, we'll we'll wrap up teaching and clarifying a little bit more about biblical faith. Let's see if we can do all that. Let's begin with this touch of faith starting Uh, As the story is already in play, Jesus is going with the synagogue ruler to wherever his house is. And in the middle of verse 42, it says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman. We don't know her name, but uh, she changes the course of that day in several ways. She reaches out for her own good, and it changes the story for the little girl Jesus was going to see. What do we know about this woman? Well, verse 43 tells us at least three things. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. We know the way that uh, people are made, that uh, there's a a monthly discharge of blood that women experience in their maturity, and uh, that was just part and parcel of life. But this woman had bleeding fairly constantly over 12 years, something unusual and painful and difficult and she had spent all her living on physicians she had exhausted all her resources and she couldn't be healed by anyone she's at the end of her rope after 12 years one year would be horrible a couple of years 12 years it had become a way of life if you want to know uh, a little bit more about how serious this is you need to know the background 
the whole chapter of Leviticus, chapter 15, talks about bodily discharges, I'll leave it at that, of both men and women. So it's not just women, it's men. If there's a discharge, bodily discharge of variety of sorts from a wound or from other causes, there were consequences. And so Leviticus, with its fullness of holiness codes and trying to teach spiritual truths to God's people as well as provide for them physically the law of God, explain those consequences. When there are these discharges, you were considered unclean and you couldn't go to the church. Um, uh, You couldn't gather with other people. You had to be separate until your uncleanness passed and then you could be restored. It was a way, uh, as the ESV study Bible says so well, so these sometimes the study Bibles are just handy and wonderful. It says here, under Leviticus 15, one characteristic of these regulations is their emphasis on the transmission of contagion disease from one person to another. Transmission of infection may occur in any number of ways. For example, by sitting on an object that a defiled person had sat on touching cooking utensils or having other direct contact no matter how it happens according to Leviticus 15 the person infected is required to separate from other people and undergo the purification ritual that word is really important to hear separate you have to stay clear of one who happens to be unclean for that period of time. The footnote there in the ESV study Bible is also very helpful to make this clarifying point. So hear me. It is the case that to be unclean is not the same as to be sinful. In the course of regular monthly uncleanliness, that's not sinful. It just meant there needed to be a separation for a time until purification, then there's restoration. It's not sinful. We sometimes hear that word unclean and we lop down the the judgment of sin. It's the way, of course, rather God's word is trying to regulate what's permitted, what's prudent, and what's proper for the, the interplay of a community, the community of God. But we need to stop and consider the consequences for this woman who experienced that for 12 years. She was in a perpetual state of uncleanness. Not sin, but just separation. She was unable to attend the synagogue, unable to attend weddings or christenings or funerals. 12 years of isolation, utter social isolation. It's... It sounds unbearable. But she's found this day in a crowd. What was different this day? She had ventured into people and jostling with other people, the crowd, and we can almost, not quite a mob, but a very active, uh, gathered crowd trying to get closer to Jesus. This woman has entered. She has stopped her separation, and she's pursuing Jesus. Because she is going to act by faith and seek help from Jesus. Verse 44 tells us, She came up behind him and just touched the fringe of his garment. Why, why this? Well, she's, she probably hopes not to be recognized. 
She probably hid her presence as best she could, trying to mask the odor of her bleeding and maybe changing her garments and getting close, not even just to touch Jesus, but just to brush up against his robes because by her faith, she thought there would be help for her. She touches the hem of his garment and immediately she's healed. And she knows it immediately. (gasps) Joy at healing. I can tell you, when I was born again, I could tell. Not, not everyone has a great immediate, emotional, uh, tangible experience. It's just the truth of the new birth is wonderful. But some do, that moment of joy. She felt physically what Jesus was going to do for her spiritually as well. An act of faith in the end of her suffering. But it's immediately followed by a question and a confirmation, a question. No sooner had she touched Jesus and probably stopped in joy at her feeling healed than she hears from the voice of Jesus, who himself stopped. He said, who is it that touched me? And certainly he stopped to look around. And she was close, but she didn't admit it. No one admitted touching him. Maybe some were feeling I I might have bumped him, but Jesus looked seeking this person to come forward. And of course, Peter, the disciple who tries to lead and and, and help Jesus as best he can. Lord, a lot of people are bumping you. You know, it's like the subway in Boston. You're just going to get jostled. And Jesus said, no, Peter. What does Jesus say? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. It is the disposition of Jesus to help those who come to him in faith. It is like the preset, the default mode. And she came by faith. And Jesus, the divine son of God, blessed her. And he was fully aware of that. And maybe as he turned and said, who touched me? He was looking at this woman the whole time. Out of everyone there, he saw her smile and then quickly changed to concern. He's speaking to her. Why does Jesus call her out? Why not let her slip away? Have you ever wondered that? Do you ask questions when you read the Bible? Just saying. Douglas Milne suggests three reasons that Jesus calls her out so publicly. And this is so very important. He calls her out to identify the fact that it was her faith that saved her. The first and most important reason, it seems, in this context, to identify the role of her faith in this miracle. It wasn't superstition. Oh, who is that? Maybe he'll give me money. Maybe he'll help me. No. It was a measure of faith. And remember, even faith... The size of a mustard seed doesn't sound like she knows a lot of theology, but she has faith even the size of a mustard seed and the strength of our Savior acts. So Jesus calls her out so that he can identify as he does verbally, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
your faith. What does Jesus identify as the whole crowd is now stopped and hushed and leaning in? What's going on? Daughter. Oh, that's the woman. Your faith has saved you. So what is this story about? It's about the saving power of faith in the right Savior. So that's the first reason Jesus calls her out so publicly. And also, I think, uh, because she had been 12 years separated and people probably didn't even give her the time of day, knowing she's continually unclean. No one came up to her anymore and said, how are you feeling today? They just probably had given up. So Jesus announces that she is well, she is whole, she is saved. Remember the Greek word sozo for salvation is related to the same word for healing. It's the same word, it just depends on context. And in the Bible, Jesus used so many physical miracles of healing to demonstrate the spiritual salvation he brings. So she's immediately healed and Jesus shows her as healed and seeks to see her restored to her community. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, not in isolation and shame, but go in shalom. It's beautiful. Of course, Jesus calls her out to give glory to God as people would marvel. Notice, too, the particular words of Jesus. I like this pattern because we want to be like him. He says, daughter, the first thing he says seems rather intimate. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament Jesus ever speaks this way. Daughter. The affection of the Lord for this weary, isolated, desperate woman. Daughter. Tenderness. You can probably see the fear in in her eyes when she first was called out. Do we see that? Um, I didn't read through and emphasize those verses. Uh, When she saw she was not hidden, she came trembling. And she fell down before him. Jesus reaches out, daughter. There's nothing wrong. I I welcome you. The word of Jesus is there to dissolve and dispel fears that don't belong. Jesus does teach us to fear God. But these other fears, be gone. Daughter, there's a welcome here. Had the opportunity to see my grandchildren this week, and I don't see them every day. I don't see them every month. And are they going to remember their papa when this big figure walks in and wants to grab them? So I approach carefully and patiently. Papa, can you say papa yet? Here's $5 if you can say papa. (laughs) I'm catching up to some of you experienced grandfathers. You wait and you approach tenderly. You don't want to increase the fear of the child. Jesus speaks to this woman who's come to him by faith and says, daughter. Oh, that's beautiful. But that's not all he says. He follows it up. Daughter, your faith. He speaks truth to her. He validates your faith in me is not in vain. Your faith, your plan You're stepping out. You're pursuing me as your your ultimate hope. That was well-placed faith. Tenderness and truth. That's the way Jesus works. He often has hard words for the religious leaders who should know better, but mostly tenderness and truth. 
So this touch of faith is a beautiful picture. Let me pause and say to you or anyone who's listening online, if you're aware of your sin and you feel desperate and you feel unworthy, I wish I had the blessings these religious Christians have. Jesus is full of grace and tenderness to any who come by faith. Repent and believe. Come to Jesus. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. God so loved the world that he sent his Son, and Jesus welcomes those who come as little children, those who come by faith. Don't try to clean up your own life first. Just come to Jesus, repentant and by faith. This is a beautiful picture of an approach and a touch of faith. But it's intertwined with another story, and we see a little bit more about faith in this story. In fact, we can call it the trial of faith. The trial of faith. Here we use the word trial. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, who originally came up with the title, A Tale of Two Daughters. Dale Ralph Davis, great help to pastors preparing sermons. I change this word to trial of faith, because what is a trial? A trial is an examination of evidence before a verdict, right? Is that kind of a trial, maybe a formal sense of a trial uh, in the civic sense? I think there's a trial of faith for this synagogue leader. And his faith is going to be tested and tried. Let's go back and catch up. Who is this guy? Uh, Verse 40, he was introduced and he got the whole passage rolling. Uh, A crowd welcomed him. Verse 41, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so here comes this ruler of the synagogue. He was likely a layman. He wasn't a priest or a Levite. He was a ruler of the synagogue, meaning he he presided over the affairs in that village at the synagogue, organizing, doing some teaching, uh, being in charge. Most of those rulers were Pharisees as well. And we know that Jesus had a lot of run-ins with Pharisees, and very few, like 99%, were not always happy. Here's this Jairus fellow, and he... uh, has a need. We're told that he was a ruler of the synagogue, but the very first thing he does is he falls at the feet of the man from Galilee. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to the high priest. His daughter's dying, and he goes. For what reason? He goes by faith to Jesus, the healer, the helper, the one everyone's talking about. Whatever amount of knowledge he had, he comes, and he is prostate before Jesus on the ground spread out and he implored him to come to my house for I have an only daughter 12 years old and she's dying if you're a dad or a mom you know that parents just kick into a whole new mode when their child is in danger and back then he couldn't call 911 he rushes to Jesus And as one has pointed out, the fact that Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus demonstrates what? It demonstrates his real need and his sincerity. He's not posturing. He's not 
uh, putting little footnotes or verbal conditions. Hey, I, you know, if, as long as you're not too pushy, I'd like your help. Or as long as you don't tell the other Pharisees downtown about this. No, he's just all out. Jesus, I need your help. Please come. And he can't wait for Jesus to come. My daughter is dying. She's not just ill. She is dying. Struggling to breathe. We don't know. And the first trial of this man's faith is the test of time. Here he's seeking help for his dying daughter. Come quickly, come now. And Jesus turns to go, but then something interrupts the whole affair. The crowd is one thing. Let's move, let's move, let's move. But then Jesus stops to talk to this woman. And, and oh, Lord, don't you know my daughter's dying? This is not the time for a delay. We don't hear him interjecting or interrupting. He's, his faith is being tested. He's still there. He's with Jesus until a messenger comes. You see, time runs out. Time runs out. The messenger comes. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, with tears for sure, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. So says the messenger. This man's faith in Jesus, is it done now? No, there is this test of trust. Even though the news brings a new level of hopelessness, Jesus is going to challenge that. You see, one of the greatest tests to our faith is death. Death itself. Especially death of someone you loved. Church history is filled with some great people of God who have suffered greatly. Some of you have heard of the, one of the greatest Puritan theologians. Among all the Puritans, they were pretty sharp guys. John Owen stands above all, right? John Owen, can I get an amen on John Owen? He and his wife had 11 children, but only one reached adulthood. Charles Wesley and his wife had eight children, and they watched five of them die. Yes, in older times, child mortality was great, and it's around less in the Western nations of the world. So we don't see it, but it's still around, perhaps most frequently in a miscarriage or a loss. It's a fairly high percentage. And such an event is a great, if not one of the greatest, trials to faith. Faith in God. So in the midst of that news, we could say when things were as bad as they could get, what does Jesus say to the man? Verse 50. The man, had given up, the man wasn't asking Jesus for anything else at that moment. But Jesus on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He was getting a different message from the mouth of the Son of God than what the world was saying. 
In the ancient world, they knew what death was, and they wouldn't have bothered him until they were absolutely certain this child was dead. They would have exhausted every step before calling it. The news comes, and Jesus says, well, you're not considering me. Do not fear. Trust me. Hear what I'm about to say. She will be well. We lose loved ones. Jesus doesn't always stop that. Here Jesus is giving him a promise. You see, faith always takes an object. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's subpoint two of the last main heading. Faith always takes an object. He is telling this man, don't just gird yourself up. He's saying, put faith in my word. She will be well. You don't be afraid. We'll go to the house. It will be well. Are you hearing this test of trust, this test of faith for yourself? You get a phone call. You get news that's unexpected. Oh, all my plans are done now. And you have no options. Do you turn to the Lord, look to his word, and then believe what it says? How about this? Romans 8.28. If there's a believer in this room who doesn't know that address in your Bible, get a pen and pencil right now. I am deadly serious. You need to know Romans 8.28. I'm going to ask how many people know what's there. Raise your hand, please. The word of God tells believers, all things work together for good. Do you believe that? And Romans 8 goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. Our Bibles tell us. And in the crucible of life, will your faith emerge? Jairus, you came to me. You put it all out, man. I saw you on the ground in your pharisaical garb and your cleanliness. You had finished tithing your mint and your thyme and your cumin. And you were coming to me and that was a good thing. Don't now fear. Keep faith in me. And here's what I'll tell you. She will be well. This is at the heart of this story. Jesus summons him to faith. There's an interesting phrase here. I know some of you Bible students noticed it. What did the messenger say? This, this, he brought the news, but then he gave advice. Do you see what the messenger gave as advice? Do not trouble the teacher anymore. We just heard that phrase in a previous chapter as we go through Luke. You, Luke, you can look it up. But it wasn't the advice of a doubter. It wasn't the advice of disbelief. Here it says, nothing more can be done. In the previous use, the man's faith was so robust. He said to Jesus, you don't need to bother to come to my house. You can say the word and it will be fixed. That was advice based on faith. What was it, the centurion passage? Here it's an advice of disbelief. The synagogue ruler, what what do you do? You put your faith in Jesus. That's what you do. It's not rocket science. Boys and girls, remember this preacher told you to put your faith in Jesus. 
And what do we see? We see a triumph of faith. Jesus shows up and people laugh at him. She's only asleep. <laughs> who is this nut job who thinks this dead child is only sleeping? What is he doing here? They laughed at him. That was the mocking and the scorning of disbelief. Nobody can conquer death. That's pretty final, buddy. They didn't know who they were talking to. Jesus, the one who conquers death. Don't we celebrate that every Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection on the first day of the week? Isn't that why we're here today of all days? Jesus is the one who conquers death. He'll tell John in Revelation 1, John, I hold the keys of death and hell. I often turn to that verse when I'm meeting with a widow or widower. And remind them, no one enters this world or departs from this world. No one, unless Jesus opens that door. He has the key. Jesus has the power over life and over death. And to me, that's one of the greatest comforts of all. No one departs without Jesus' permission. There's this triumph. It's just a command. Jesus speaks to the little girl. Little girl, get up. Child, arise. He speaks tenderly, but he speaks with authority and commands her. Much like what we read in John chapter 11. The story of Lazarus, one of Jesus' friends. He had been in the tomb four days. He shows up and people were mourning and then they, they believe, Lord, we dare not open that tomb because the stink of a dead body. Four days in a Middle Eastern tomb. Jesus says, roll the stone away. Jesus speaks. The commanding voice of God the Son, who was present at creation, who called the stars into being, the planets, the animals, the sea creatures. That voice said, Lazarus, come out here. And Jesus says to this child, who had stopped breathing, who was dead, child, get up. Come on, time to get up. And she does. It, it wasn't a resurrection unto eternal life. It was a restoration. It was a raising of the dead. All these terms are appropriate. Jesus calls her to faith. Interestingly enough, in our adult Sunday school class today, from John chapter 5, it's all about faith. Interesting how these topics align. This triumph was met by the eating of food. And Jesus gives her to her parents and says, don't tell anybody uh, because my purpose isn't more publicity at this point. I just want to highlight faith in me. In John chapter 11, surrounding the story of Lazarus, Jesus said very plainly, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Sounds kind of cryptic if you're hearing it for the first time. What does Jesus mean? In me, I conquer death because the cause of death is sin. I take away your sin. I, you will not experience death the same way as the world if you're a believer. It's a transition. It's like crossing the River Jordan into the promised land. Jesus is life. And that triumph comes by putting our faith in him. So let me conclude today by talking about faith. We need to just be clear about a few things. Because this is the central thing here, right? Faith. 
He says to the woman, daughter, your faith has saved you. He says to the synagogue ruler, don't fear, have faith, even in this crucible. Truth about faith. Let's first say what faith is not. And this needs to be said in our modern world. Faith is not subjective. Faith is not just a feeling. The two key words are going to be subjective and objective. And we're not talking grammar. I'm not going to get too technical on you, but you can tell what the difference is. Subjective is variable. It's like feelings. He's not just saying, do you feel good about this? Faith is not a subjective feeling. Rather, we'll see, faith takes an object. Faith in this. What else that faith is not? Faith is not mere credulity. Well, I suppose that's true. Uh, Like wishful thinking. Something that could be true, maybe apart from evidence. Faith is not just optimism. I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I find a lot of people having to correct me. You know, somebody said a few weeks ago, oh, the Boston Celtics, they're going to get swept. They're playing so badly. I said, well, maybe not. I was optimistic because they were playing very badly. That's not faith. Faith isn't just a feeling. It's not just, uh, it's credible, or I'm an optimist. Yeah, I hope things turn out. That's not what faith is. And the reason that it's so confusing, among other reasons, is because there was a liberal theologian by the name of Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book, The Power of Positive Thinking, and influenced a lot of people that your thinking is faith. You, you just think a little harder and it'll be yours. To me, that's, that's right up there with learning the word abracadabra. You know, that's not biblical faith. And you know, Norman Vincent Peale is passed from the scene. I doubt that half the people in this room recognize the name. You can Google him, but don't, don't bother. But there are other people that have come along doing basically the same thing, maybe not as blatantly, The smiling preacher named Joel on the TV. I'm not saying every word that comes out of his mouth is evil. But I tell you, my impression is, and I'm willing to go on record by calling him out. He starts his services with this mantra. And why does he have his listeners repeat this mantra? Well, he's not discipling them in the catechism. I think it's an offshoot of the power of positive thinking. I think this way, I'm declaring it out loud with everybody else, so this is going to come true for me. Faith is not just that name it and claim it feeling. What is faith? Faith is objective faith. That's the way the Bible speaks of it. Faith in an object. I have faith in Jesus Christ. Who? That's pretty specific. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I have faith in God. And that's very nebulous. That's a good start. But God has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus. So you may be a, a person of faith and believe in God, but you've got to be a little more specific. Because God has spoken about the, the, the way to approach the runway here. You can only come by Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the biblical faith. As Jesus spoke to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, in verse 50, he said, believe. He said fear, but he didn't provide the object. What shouldn't he fear and what should he have believed? 
He shouldn't have feared death. Well, boy, that's a big fear. The Christian need not fear death. Maybe you haven't read that great climax in the book of Romans or the resurrection chapter in, in uh, Corinthians. It says, don't fear, but believe. And believe is a verb here. He's not just saying, do you have that feeling? Can you find that feeling? He says, no, take that action and put your faith in my words. She will be well. Put your faith in that. Or put your faith in another word. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast away. Or what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, uh, uh, here are my people, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Or Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will come again and take you to heaven. These promises of Jesus, the person of Jesus, faith takes an object. Always, that's biblical faith. And if someone can't articulate that, they may still be on the way. Help them. Point them to Jesus. Read to them some of the things Jesus said. It's the best way to get their nebulous faith into the person of the Son of God. It's believing. And it has to be not just believing the truths about Jesus, the other point here is it needs to be personal trust and commitment. I once went to a prayer meeting as a, as a young believer, as a college freshman in the home of a professor. He and his wife were quite old. I don't know, you weren't there at the time. This is before you were on campus. And uh, I've always been kind of a big guy. When they had all these students here, probably at least 20 of us crammed into their house, they used every chair imaginable. And, and I hate to admit it, the, there was the smallest chair left when I came to sit. And I was a little nervous, so I'm sitting the whole time very carefully. And we finished our meal, there was a devotional, we had a round of prayer, and I had sat safely the whole time. And we're done praying, and I'm just so pleased. Oh, I stretched and snapped the back off the chair. <laughs> when I sat down, I, I believed the chair would hold me up. It did. I also believed it was frail, but my actions wavered on that point. Faith is personal. You believe in Christ, you entrust yourself to Christ. Like someone believes a chair will hold you up, you will sit in it. And, and that's an exercise of faith and trust personally. Different from head knowledge. It's a commitment Jesus was saying to Jairus, let's keep walking. Don't fear, only believe. Because faith isn't a feeling that comes or goes or that you had that one time that you look back at. No, faith is your act of will to trust Jesus and his word, to trust him daily. Some closing exhortations. Let's wrap up three things I like the first. It's not original to me. The first exhortation is, bother the master. <laughs> Do you remember the advice that we didn't like here? He says, don't bother the master anymore. My advice to you, when things are in the tank and when you have just no other recourse or even before that, bother the master. Turn to Jesus. He welcomes. He, he, he said, 
hey, don't try to protect me. Let the little children come to me. That's really a picture of anyone who comes with childlike faith is going to find a welcome with Jesus. Bother the master with your need. Do it by prayer. Come. Come to Jesus. Don't delay. Don't think that things are already too far gone. Bother the master. He's welcoming. Trust the master. Believe. Remember, that's a verb. It's not a feeling. It's a verb. Believe. Put your faith in him. Hear what he says. And if it doesn't sound perfect to you, figure it out because it's what he said. Pursue it. Trust. Bother him and then trust him as you discover what he requires. And thirdly, follow the master. Even when it's a little hard. Your daughter's died. Jairus, follow me. Let's go see. She'll be well. Sometimes Jesus asks us to walk in unexpected places at unexpected times. Bother, trust, and follow. You can mix up the order. They're interchangeable. Jesus wants us to learn the power of faith. In a crowd, when we're by ourselves, he's available. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for your holy word. How you orchestrated in the life of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, these these episodes that are so instructive and they're recorded for our benefit, for the instruction of our faith. Father, maybe we can identify with that bleeding woman of 12 years or the parent. Father, we often feel desperate. Thank you for encouraging us to bother the master, to bother you, Lord, with our needs. Father, help us learn more about faith and help us to exercise faith beyond just a feeling. May it be our commitment May we consider the author and perfecter of our faith and not turn back. Oh, Heavenly Father, help others come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even today, maybe at this moment, may they say, okay, and trust Jesus. Lord, go before us. We don't know what a day will bring, what the messengers will advise. But may we hear your word, believe your word, obey your word and delight in you. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.